0: So let me open in prayer, and then we'll pick up on our church history class. Lord, we are so to be here. It is with a thankful heart that we come to learn, that we come to understand more about the men and women who went before us. I pray that you would move in our hearts to love you all the more and be encouraged by others and their example in the faith. Help us to proclaim the gospel like these men did in the early American colony days. Help us to love you so much that we want to tell others and we're not ashamed of the gospel. So bless us this morning as we study in this class. Bless the other classes as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, I have a book giveaway, New Life in Christ by Steve Lawson. What really happens when you're born again and why it matters. Anybody anybody interested in this book? All right, let's think of a hard question. Really hard question. Let's see. Last week What did I covered last week I covered the Puritans. So tell me who wrote The Mortification of Sin. First person. Jacob John Owen. All right, come get your book, New Life in Christ. You got to promise to read it though. Steve Lawson, one of my favorites. It may be my favorite most passionate preacher today he 's great on the new birth in fact he he goes back to George Whitfield, which we 're going to look at today on the new birth so the, now we 're past the puritans we 're past the Reformation, the English Reformation, and we 're going to talk about what happens after the puritan age we 're not covering every single tidbit in church history we 're just really covering the major events and movements that come up to us today so we 're not looking at what happens in china we 're not looking at what happens in Persia. We're not looking at what happens in other parts of the world. Those are interesting subjects. We're looking at the main flow of Christian church history and, and theology from the early church in Jerusalem all the way to as close as we can get to Bernie, Texas today. We probably won't get up to our lifetimes before the end of May when this class ends, but we're going to get as close as we can. So we're now in the revival period and the first great awakening, and we have to do a little work in between the Puritan age and the great awakening. So we're going to look at Protestant developments from John Calvin to Jonathan Edwards. So here's a map of Europe, and that is where we're looking at. We're looking at the Western Western Europe, basically. We're not even considering Eastern Europe or the East where... Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox is the predominant Christian or Islam is the a predominant religion. We're looking at the western Europe and, and mainly where the reformation has taken root. And so you see where Lutheranism has spread from Germany north into Denmark, Sweden, even today those countries are officially Lutheran and Norway and then you have some Anabaptists. We talked about them and, and how they were separatists. They're, they're more spread to the east of Germany and in various areas. Then you have the Swiss Reforms. This is where Zwingli and Calvin reformed things in Switzerland. The Huguenots in France, they're persecuted fiercely. And there's very few of them that make it through that persecution. And then in the southern part of Europe, that's still Roman Catholic. So Spain, France for the most part, and Italy remain Catholic. So does Austria. And then the Dutch Reformed and the Dutch areas and the Dutch countries, which starts out with as multiple smaller areas, they're Reformed. And then we've already talked about how the Reformation spread to England, you have the Anglican Church birth, not because of some sort of theological conviction, but Henry VIII wanted a divorce. He couldn't get it, so he just breaks off from the Catholic Church. And future theologians and pastors want to continue that Reformation. They're called the Puritans. They're sometimes persecuted. They start to leave England. They go to the Dutch country, the Dutch area, and then they eventually end up in America. The Presbyterians are the, the Puritans in the north, in Scotland. So when we say English, we're really talking about the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, and the Puritans. So let's just start with the Lutherans. What happens to the Lutherans after Luther? What happens to the Lutherans in Germany? Well, after Luther dies, his right-hand man, Melanchthon, picks up the mantle. And Melanchthon's much more of a scholar. He's much more of an academic. And he's not quite as... I don't want to say Calvinistic because that doesn't make sense with Luther. But he's not going to follow in the predestination election theology as much. But he does help to systematize the Lutheran faith. And so that's a period called the Lutheran orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the right doctrine. What kind of things should they believe as Lutherans? And so they began to systematize their theology and write out confessions. And they began to emphasize logic and reason which do have a place in theology, but they can be overemphasized as well. And so they're really working hard against the Roman Catholic theology. And sometimes they were even opposing what Calvin was saying and then working against the reformed position in Switzerland and France. They define true Christianity in terms of correct doctrinal formulations. So the issue becomes more just about the doctrine and not so much on the life, on the sanctification. The result's going to be very spiritual and, and theological lethargy, or what some would call a dead orthodoxy. So after Luther, after Melanchthon, in the in the 1700s, we start to see, especially 16, 1700s, a, a dead orthodoxy. Yes, they've got right views, but it, it seems dead. The frozen chosen is what sometimes people call a Presbyterian church that might have good doctrine, but isn't doing anything with it. The frozen chosen. So Lutheranism continues. And there's an attempt to wake it up with pietism. Pietism emphasizes more of that spiritual experience and inward transformation. So it's not just about what we believe in the head, but also how we live it out in the heart. Johann Arndt and, and Philip Jacob Spinner are early fathers of pietism. Now this goes wrong because there's too much focus now on the heart and the experience. And so we see that today in America, don't we? Where it's a, It's your experience that gets to dictate everything and what you believe and what truth is. it's all about my experience. But one of the better pietists was Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf, very wealthy. He had land. He had an estate. He gets saved. He gets converted. And he wanted to establish something different. So he broke away from the Lutheran church and he established the Moravian movement in 1727. The Moravians were about taking the gospel out to the lost. And they were also about separating, Not, not quite like the the Amish or the Mennonites, but they would set up their own communities. And Zinzendorf had a lot of money to do that. There's his painting there, his mugshot, and there's an example of his estate. You have a place that was set up for him to live on with his money, and he turns it over basically into a place for Moravians to, to come together and live and work and train up missionaries. And they did send out missionaries all over the world. The Moravians were one of the first to really focus on sending out missionaries. And so there's some great stories in church history on that. So Lutheranism continues, and there's a lot of fighting between the, the Lutheran Protestants and the Catholics in Germany. This county would be Catholic, this county would be Lutheran. That would cause a war between princes. It's not one unified nation, even though it may sound like it with the Holy Roman Empire. The, the emperor's rules over all of it but there would be different princes fighting it out. And so the 30 years war was primarily started as this kind of religious war. After that ends, you see what's called the Enlightenment. We don't have time to go into all that the Enlightenment was, but you have have Newton and Kant and others in different countries really working to undermine a lot of the accepted beliefs and traditions that had once been held. And in a, in a sense, what they're doing is trying to undermine the beliefs that so many people had. And so what that produced, this enlightenment, is a kind of, yes, we believe in God. Yes, we believe in God. We're, we're deists, but it, we're very naturalistic about it. We, we don't hold to miracles. We don't hold to anything we can't measure, anything we can't taste or see or smell with our senses. It's very much about... Only what we can prove, and today we would say only what we can prove by science. That's where it was headed. So it becomes sort of rational, all about the mind and and studying the sciences, and not so much about the faith, not so much about doctrine. So here's, here's what we see here in a timeline. Luther dies in 1546. This orthodoxy develops. Pietism splits off. That starts the Moravians. They do get some doctrine written down early in Luther's life. That's called the Diet or Diet of Augsburg, a meeting that they had in Augsburg where they put together a confession, and that still makes up the basis of conservative Lutheran churches today. So Pietism is is dominating between 1689 and 1750 into the 1800s. We have rationalism dominating, and then eventually rationalism, that Enlightenment thinking becomes replaced by liberalism. So in the 1800s, the Germans are pumping out lots of liberal academic scholarship on the Bible. They're denying that God wrote the Bible. They're denying all these different things that had always been accepted in Western Christianity. And then the English will pick that up, and Americans, and even today, they still look back to many of these German liberals. Let's talk about the reform. There's really three main branches there on the continent. We have the Dutch Reformed, the Huguenots, and the Swiss Reformed. Some of this I know is going to be a little bit of review if you've been with us each week because we covered some of this a few weeks ago. Theodore Beza is the one who follows John Calvin in Geneva. So Calvin's the systematizer. He's the one who writes down the theology of the Reformation. He doesn't start his own religion. He wants, like Luther, he wants to reform the Catholic Church. They won't have it. They persecute any Protestant trying to do that. So he leaves, ends up in Switzerland as the pastor, and he's writing a theology book. Really one of the first Reformed theology work called the Institutes. And so he is about not just preaching the word, that's that's vital, but also making sure we have our doctrine right. Through the preaching of the word, right doctrine is being proclaimed. And so Beza, who follows up, starts reform Scholasticism. This is a focus on logic and reason to interpret Scripture. You may remember we talked about this in the Middle Ages, a man named, a theologian named Thomas Aquinas. He was a Catholic scholastic. Well, now the Reformed are going to look back to him and take some of the ways that he used logic and reason and tradition and Scripture And start to work out, okay, what is it that the Bible teaches on all of these different issues? Uh, Though not Lutheran, they were similar to Lutheran Orthodox in their approach. Now, they didn't end up with as dead of an orthodoxy as Lutheranism. But you can see, any time we start to emphasize the mind over the heart, or the heart and experience over the mind, we're going to run off into a rut on each side of the road. We've got to use both our heart and mind that God has given us to live and move forward in the Christian life. In France, the followers of Calvin, remember he trains up many French men to go back and pastor churches in France, even though they're going to be killed for that. The the king is very Catholic. He's going to persecute them. In fact, Calvin's school was once known as the school of death. Calvin's school of death, because you go there, you get trained on how to preach. You go back to France, you get killed. And about 2,000 Frenchmen were trained in Calvin school, and went back and were persecuted and died in France. Greatly persecuted, did not really gain their full freedom until the French Revolution, but by the French Revolution, all religion is cast aside and the Enlightenment takes hold. And so nobody's even going to listen even to the Huguenots by that point, or very few, I should say, unless God is moving them. In the Netherlands, the reform movement really took hold. The Dutch Reformed Church comes out of it. We've talked about already the Synod of Dort, where those five points of Calvinism are delineated based on what Arminius and his followers are doing. Also, this is the first time that covenantalism or covenant theology is clearly written down and proclaimed and taught there in the churches. I know you might not be familiar with all of these things, covenant theology, superlapse. I'll probably mention some of these later, like covenant theology, but if, if not... Make sure when I teach systematic theology class, which is multiple semesters and years, that you take that. Superlapsarian, which was a view on how God logically in his mind set up the, the world and the fall and, and how did he plan it all. Arminius thought that the superlapsarian view was too harsh. That's what Beza was teaching. So he leaves Geneva, he goes to the ne- Netherlands, and he emphasizes man's free will. So he starts what's today called. Arminianism, not from the country Armenia, but from Jacob Arminius. And so he starts that. The Synod of Dort really says that's not right theology. That's not found in scripture. You're emphasizing free will over the sovereignty of God. So they tell the Arminians to leave the country. Some of them do, many of them do, but that thinking travels now to England, and many in the Anglican church began to hold to more of an arminian view than the calvinistic view. And so that's where we go next. We really covered this already, so I apologize if you weren't here. We're going to be going pretty quick. We have the reformation in England, from that we get the puritans and the anglic I'm sorry, the presbyterian church. The English reformation initially influenced by Luther. So people want to reform the church in England. And Luther is is a powerhouse in Germany. He's pumping out these books. He's under persecution. Thomas Cramner wants to reform the church there in England. The result, because of Henry VIII's divorce, is an Anglican model, which is sort of half Protestant, half Roman Catholic. The Anglicans wouldn't like that description today, but it really is. It still has the, the, the vestments. It still has the the kneeling, it still has the candles, it still has the, the altar. There's a lot of similarities. And it's changed somewhat since these early days, but it's sort of half and half. And when Mary comes into power, Bloody Mary, she is Catholic. So the Anglican Church kind of gets knocked around back and forth, and the Puritans get killed. The Reform movement in Europe is persecuted because of her, especially in England, and uh, they go to Europe, the, these English do, they come back after Mary dies. And they're known as Puritans because they want to purify that church, make it more reformed, not so much Catholic still. The monarchs of England, Elizabeth, we talked about Elizabeth quite a bit. James I, who oversaw the King James translation, Charles I, they oppose the, the Puritan views in general. Even though Elizabeth allowed it to, to go on, James and especially Charles opposed it. This leads to civil war. There's a great war. The Puritans and the Parliament win over. They make Puritanism sort of the state religion at that point. And uh, eventually that gets overthrown as well. But during, especially James the I, there are Puritans leaving. And in Charles the I, there are Puritans leaving. They end up in America because the, the America had been discovered. You could go and live there in the colonies and they would get charters. And so they would leave and charter this area where they could live on and they could farm and they could start a village. And so that's how the, the pilgrims come to America. They're Puritans and they hold to a reformed view of theology and they're bringing that now with them to America. Why did they come to America? Because they were persecuted. I got taught that when I was in public school many years ago. But I wasn't told why they were persecuted. Why they were persecuted. What did they believe? It was kind of strange to me to be in in a school hearing that they were persecuted. But I thought, they're Christians. England, England is Christian. Well, they were persecuted because they wanted to stick closer to the Bible in their worship and in their theological beliefs. And the king didn't want that because in the Anglican church, the king or queen today Is head of the church. So to go against the church in England is, in essence, going against the king. And eventually there was a civil war over it, so they weren't completely off on that. And Charles I lost his head. And so after that, Charles II was really not going to let the Puritans take over. But if you put them out there in a colony in America, they're too far to mess with England. It's okay. So here's the breakdown we have the Lutheran influence in England. You have the Reformed influence from Zwingli and Calvin and people were leaving and going to Geneva and getting trained and then Mary dies and they're coming back to England. They're bringing that training. And so you see the Anglican church start to change, become more Protestant even. And then Presbyterians are up in Scotland. You have the more Orthodox Anglicans. They're the, the ones that are a little bit more Catholic. They tend to be more Arminian even today. Even today in the Anglican or Episcopalian church You have what's called conservative. These are the evangelical. These are the ones who want to go out and proclaim the gospel. They're more Calvinistic. And then you have the the more, what do they call them, Catholic Anglicans, Anglo-Catholic. They're more Roman Catholic. They're more Arminian in their views. The Puritans were a group inside the Anglican church, but some will separate out. These are the ones who come to America. They're called separatists. And then from the separatists, you get the Baptists. So so the Baptists are separatists. They've separated from the Anglican Church over doctrine, but they've also changed their view on baptism. They believe that a believer should be baptized and not an infant who hasn't had enough time to even talk and think and proclaim and profess the faith. And so they hold to believers' baptism. And in this this chart says there's some Anabaptist influence. No doubt there is, but the earliest Baptists in England and the ones in America are very Calvinistic. They're very Reformed. They hold to the tulip view of soteriology. So now let's come to America, and that's where we're going to really stay from here through the end of the class next month. The Plymouth Colony is established in 1620. And Plymouth Colony, that's the pilgrims they come over. They are mostly Congregationalists—they are people that were Puritans, men that were Puritans, families that were Puritans. They go to the Netherlands. They don't like the influence their teenage children are receiving. The Dutch, the Dutch Reformed, just at the time, are a little wild, and they say, "Look, we just left our country to persecution. Now we're going to see all our kids turn away from the faith because they're following after these Dutch teenagers." Let's go to America. So they get on the ships. They come to America. Two colonies, the, the two colonies, Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth Colony, are united in 1648. And then in 1636, Harvard University starts, and it starts because they want to train up good reformed pastors, biblically sound preachers. That's the whole point. Of course, didn't last long. By the 1800s, Harvard is gone liberal, and today they still have a seminary program, but it's it's not Christian. Roger Williams leaves because he's, a, he's coming to Baptist convictions there in the uh, Plymouth Colony and uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. And, and they start to really look down upon Roger Williams. So his family and some others leave. They go to Rhode Island. So that colony is founded mostly from the Baptists. And when I say Baptists, you need to think a more Reformed Baptist. They're not Southern Baptists. First of all, that hasn't started yet. Secondly, they're not in the South. And the Southern Baptist today is very Arminian in theology. That was not the case. So these are Puritans who hold to a believer's baptism. And Congregationalism, don't think today, again, of of Southern Baptists who meet after every Sunday to vote on everything. That's, That's not the Congregational. These are Puritans who hold to infant baptism. They hold to more of the Anglican church model. But they reformed it and they said... We're not under the archbishop. We're not under the bishop over a territory. Each church and that congregation is its own church and its own leadership. And elders, elders in the church govern that church. And the congregation nominates and and they determine within their own church the beliefs that they will follow. The initial generations of Puritan in New England were very devout, very fervent. You've got guys like John Cotton and Increase Mather, Cotton Mather. These are just as much Puritan as the ones in England. They write books. They write volumes of stuff. We never read it. We don't hear about it. Because all we hear about is the politics in school today. We hear about the politics of early America, how they founded a new country, the history. That's great, but they they wrote some, some good works. John Cotton, especially. The next generation, though, and the next generation becomes, we'll say, more watered down. They're very indifferent to spiritual things. They become, there's even a sermon that gets preached at some point about how watered down the belief and and the spiritual vigor and zeal, how watered down, how weak it had become. By 1643, you had a lot of unbelievers in the church. And a man named Solomon Stoddard, Eventually, will become a pastor there in Northampton, and he will stay there for fifty five years. So he stays in a major city at the time. He stays for for some years. Fifty five years is a long time in one church. And he he notices he's a, a godly man, but he notices that the decline in spirituality, in desire to learn the scriptures, in a desire to live it out, is weakened. And this again, we see this today, don't we? Sometimes. If you don't involve your children in the church and you don't involve them in learning and you sort of just ship them off to the to another building where all the the rock music is gone, and they never learn the bible and even some churches today, even during the main worship service, teenagers are somewhere else, and so they're not learning their parents aren't teaching them they're not going through the Bible at home. What happens to the next generation? you know we ship them off to college and then we wonder why they turn away because they've never actually been part of the church in many cases, in many churches. Well, Stoddard noticed this. Of course, they weren't shipping the teenagers off. They were there in the church, and they were growing up, and they actually weren't saved. But because they'd been baptized when they were infants, they were part of the church. So what is Solomon Stoddard going to do? You have all these people in the church who aren't actually believers, and they were not claiming to be believers. They were out drinking, getting drunk, partying. They did not care And then they would show up on Sunday and take part in the services. Well, Stoddard comes up with something new. He says, let's come up with a halfway covenant. Let's bring in these nominal Christians. Christians who say they're Christians by culture, but they don't live it out. They don't try to follow God's word. They're not born again. So here's what the halfway covenant was. It provided a partial church membership. So you're a a partial member of the church. As long as you follow the rules that the church has set, and don't disrupt that, and you you can follow the creeds of the church. The creeds would be very basic. And then you've been baptized as an infant. Even if you didn't profess to be converted, even if you said, I'm not really a Christian, you could still be a member, a partial member there, according to the halfway covenant. And then they could join communion. So that was the big issue. Because at communion, you warn, like we do, we warn unbelievers, this is not for you. If you're professing to be a believer, but you're not living at all like that, you should not partake. You should examine yourself. Well, in those days, they would actually have, and some churches still do, you would come up front, and the the elders would be down there, and they would see who's going to take it. And you don't get communion if you haven't been living a godly life and you haven't been overall exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Well, this becomes a huge problem. And so Stoddard thinks he solves it here. He says, look, we'll give you communion. We'll give you the things that you need to feel like a Christian. And I remember, even in Calvin's church, this was a big deal. You remember the Libertines when I taught on that? And how they had their swords ready to draw to hack at Calvin because he wouldn't give them the Lord's Supper? He says, look, you're out getting drunk, womanizing, doing all of these things. Then you show up on Sunday and think you can have communion. And he would not give it to him. Stoddard, on the other hand, he sort of falls to the pressure and comes up with the halfway covenant. By the time we come to his son's ministry, Jonathan Edwards, the New England church is very nominal. means in name only. They're very lethargic. Just sort of sitting back, going through the motions. And spiritually dead. So the first great awakening is an awakening in the church of true gospel-saving zeal, love, conversion. All of these things come alive under Edwards and others that we'll look at. So there's a need for revival, and this paves the way for Edwards and Whitfield, some of the most famous preachers in American history. So here are the colonies by 1750, roughly. You'll see that the South is Anglican. And even in the American Civil War, there's there's still this split. The South is very Anglican. Large plantations there, a lot of wealth. The North, so Anglican's green. The North, especially Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, mostly congregational. Congregational, these were the first pilgrims that came over. Think more along the lines of Puritan, or when you think of congregational. There are a few Lutheran areas in blue, but it's it's hard to see. And then Presbyterian, depending on what area, and, and pink there, the Scottish are starting to come to America by this point. And so by 1750, you can see how the different colonies are divided based on their religious beliefs. And there's even some triangles in different colors. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 2015. There's Dutch, German, French, Quaker. Quakers are a new spiritual, they, they got revelations from God and they would quake and shake and do, do away with church and kind of do their own meetings. You can even see Jews, Roman Catholics as well on this map. All right, so now we move into the Great Awakening. Everybody's going through the motion in America. They're sort of spiritually dead. It's, it's much the same way in England. They've gotten used to the Reformation. Yeah, we believe the Bible. Yeah, we, we like going to church. That's what everybody does. But every day in their life, they looked just like the world. They looked just like they hadn't been converted. So we come now to the Great Awakening, George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. These are men that proclaim the gospel. They preach the truth. They brought revival to England, but especially to America as well. All right, does anybody really like this time in church history? I love Edwards, and you'll, you'll see that next week. And, and Whitfield, too. It's very interesting. To me, this was when, when I started studying, this was 12, 13 years ago. I started studying theology and church history. I, I had no idea this was part of our American history. It's not taught, it's not taught in many churches, it's certainly not taught in school. And you just tend to think well, most churches today are Arminian, most churches today are very different than the early church, than the Reformation. it wasn't always that way in America. In fact, in 1776, the King of England says that this revolution is a Presbyterian revolt. It's just because there's all these Puritans and their descendants in America, and they've always been a problem to to the monarchy, and that's why they're revolting. And so he thinks of them all as just a bunch of Presbyterians. I didn't realize... All that was there until I began to study it. And now, I love church history, of course. There's always something new to learn. So even though we're only a few generations now in the 1700s, removed from the Puritans, as I've said, the, the state of the church is not great. It's in need of revival. They're very worldly, worldly pastors. Pastors at this point are getting into the Enlightenment. That's, that's the cool thing. It's not to study the Bible and theology anymore. It's to study philosophy again. Uh, let's let's learn what Immanuel Kant is writing about, and, and let's go back and, and read these great philosophers. What about science? What about Isaac Newton and his discoveries? And, and, and that's fine. Jonathan Edwards will do some of that, but he doesn't lose his focus on theology, the Bible. There were many pastors who were spending a lot of time. In fact, if you watch a lot of the old British shows or read Jane Austen or Jane Eyre, the, the pastors are all about something else. You know, they, they get an Anglican bishopric they get a job in the anglican church and uh, they just sit around and sort of study and do other things and they're just kind of like the the knowledgeable guy in town but there's not much preaching you know there's not much true theology when i read those books or or watch any of those old shows so they were uh, talking about those different things they weren't focused on spiritual renewal in the church even among the dissenters the puritans the gospel's out of date Uh, they think it's too boring we need something new. The spiritual zeal, these people get too excited about theology and the Bible. They're fanatics. You ever hear that today? Your church is too doctrinal. Y'all care too much about doctrine. Well, that was what they were saying in early America and in England in the 1700s. It's too much focus on what the Bible says. And we don't want to hear that. Historian, this Michael Haken is living today, great historian of the church. He says... The Christian life was basically defined in terms of a moral life of good works. I believe in God. I'm a good person. I do good things. Does that sound familiar? Does anybody believe that today out there? I'm a good person. I believe in God. I do good things. I'm going to heaven. That was the church in the 1700s. Sometimes things stay the same, don't they? Michael Haken says, summing up the the transatlantic, this means on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, you have England and America, which is essentially part of England at that time. In the opening decades of the 18th century, the 1700s, he quotes another historian that lists the state of the church. A decay, a very noticeable decay of ministerial authority. It's no longer a pastor saying, thus saith the Lord... But let me tell you what I have to say to you today. Let me tell you my thoughts. Let me tell you you know, stories. There's a growth in rationalism. It's all about the mind and philosophy. There's a massive intellectual assault on supernatural Christianity. No one doubted the miracles in the Bible until the Enlightenment. And then they start to... to, Or at least, I shouldn't say no one. The majority of churches and theologians and pastors did not doubt that. And the Enlightenment comes and suddenly... That's the popular view. You know, Jesus didn't really feed the 5,000, the 4,000. He just had some extra fish in the cave. And every time somebody came up, he was just grabbing those extra baskets that were hidden away. That's the kind of things that come out of the Enlightenment and then the liberal movement. They try to undo the supernatural miracles of the Bible. There's much luxury in America at this time. We tend to think, oh, they're colonists. They can't be that wealthy. They are very wealthy. They have estates, even, even those in the north. Are doing quite well after they make it through the first few generations at least. There's frivolity of the young. There's an indifference on their part to spiritual matters. The young just want to have a good time. You know, this is a a new country, this is a new world, we can have fun. They have a sense of spiritual powerlessness among both pious Anglicans and dissenters. And then there's homosexuality, profanity, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and gluttony were widespread. So here's what you often hear. Those early Puritans, that that culture was very Puritanical. Everybody thought you had to be perfect. You know, you read, uh, what's the book we all have to read? Scarlet Letter. You know, they're just awful Puritans. They They hurt people. They kill people. They have all these laws. And everything was just so pristine and perfect. Well, that's not quite the truth. Yeah, there were some incidences like that and they did try to implement a new society with their villages but as the country gets organized a lot of those laws go out of existence but there was a lot of sin there were all of these sins at the last point here do those sound familiar are those around today yeah they were around in solomon's day they were around in david's day they were around in jesus and paul's day these sins are always there in the world but the difference is these people were saying they were Christian and still doing this. Let's talk about the Whitfield and the Wesleys. John Wesley, born in 1703. He's born in Epworth, England. He's the fifteenth of nineteen children. The fifteenth of nineteen children. There's a great little book on his mother. She how much she would pray, how she would how all these kids running around this little home, and she would throw the apron over her head. And she would say, that's that's mommy's prayer time, don't bother me. And she would pray for her children. I, I like her story probably better than Wesley's story because of her faithfulness there, her dedication. His father is an Anglican minister. His brother, Charles, is born a little bit later, 1707. John is rescued from a fire. So what is he, about six years old at this point? The church catches fire where his father is a minister, and he gets rescued out of that. And later in life, he's going to say that I was plucked from the fire using biblical language and set apart for special service. So at this point, he sees himself as being called by God to go into ministry. George Whitfield is born in 1714, so he's a little bit younger than the Wesleys. Born December 16th. His father died when he was young, his mother remarried when he was seven. A stepfather's not a good choice, so his mother leaves her second husband. And uh, George is is not as wealthy as the Wesleys. He has trouble. He has to delay his education to help at the family inn to make money. Family's very poor. He could not really afford a university education. Not like today, where there's scholarships and student loans and all this. He couldn't get into Oxford. He couldn't get into Cambridge. He does eventually make his way there, though. 1729. Charles Wesley goes to Oxford. And he starts a club. Now, they're all Anglicans. All of these men are Anglicans. But Wesley senses this feeling like we need to be doing more, not just thinking about all this doctrine. We need to be living it out in a holy living. George comes in 1732. And so he's going to join this club. It's a, a club is a, a group of students who meet, just like today, they have clubs in university, The chess club debate club. This was a holy club and they would focus on holiness. And so the only way that George could afford to go to university is he served as a servitor. I think I say that right. An errand boy for other students. So he would run errands for them. And they were all wealthy so they could pay you know little lackey George there to run errands. And George starts to feel like maybe he's not saved. So he prays three times a day. He fasts weekly it's it's very different if you haven't grown up in this kind of environment you're you're baptized as an infant you're told you're a christian you're part of the church you grow up and start to get under this conviction that you're not saved and that's what he feels the wesleys will feel the same in 33 there he he gets invited to breakfast by charles wesley charles wesley's the composer of many hymns i think he wrote like 5 6000 hymns we sing many of them today anybody know some wesley hymns haley what's some and Can It Be is probably one of my favorites. Oath for a Thousand Tongues, I think, is Charles Wesley. He wrote a lot. Not all of them were very good. Some of them were very anti-reformed. So nobody sings those, including the Arminians today. They don't sing them either. They sing all the reformed ones. Anyway, he gets invited to breakfast. He joins the club there. There's already 10 or 11 men. And Wesley gives him a little book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by a Puritan named Henry Skugel. And this showed, he says, Whitfield says, this showed me that I must be born again or be damned. So you can see how little they're understanding conversion at this time. That he has to pick up a little booklet by a Puritan and he has to go back a hundred years previous to a writer who says you must be born again. Because that wasn't being stressed. You were already a Christian. You're basically, you're born a Christian. You know, it's like in America today. You're in America. Of course you're a Christian. Well, that's the way it was back then. And he reads this book. He's got conviction of sin. And he says, am I born again? That's going to become a huge emphasis in his preaching. You must be born again. You must be born again. Here's Michael Haken. He was, though he did not know it at the time, treading a pathway similar to the one that Martin Luther had taken over 200 years earlier. Just as Luther's conversion was the spark that lit the fires of the Reformation, so Whitfield's conversion would be central to kindling the blaze of the 18th century revival. The whole First Great Awakening in America starts with Whitfield and, and Jonathan Edwards. And Whitfield is traveling along this same early path as Luther and this conversion. Luther starts the Reformation, Whitfield, the First Great Awakening. So the Holy Club continues. Whitfield seeks to be assured of his salvation, and so the way that you do that if you're not saved is you just discipline yourself. I'll just work harder. I'll do more good works. And he worked so hard that he started to become ill. He started to be too hard with his fasting and severe discipline. And participants in this Holy Club are are called by this time Methodist. So they're too methodical. The the Anglicans would, the other students and, and the pastors would make fun of them. Also, they had a very methodical approach to scriptures and Christian living. So Methodist is someone who is an Anglican at this time who wants to live out what the Bible teaches. The problem is much of the Holy Club isn't converted yet. They're not even saved. And so they're trying the wrong way to live it out and earn their salvation. In 1735, after years of penitent soul searching, Whitfield becomes first of the Oxford Methodists, the first one to experience true conversion. So they're trying, they're striving for holiness. They grew up in Christian homes. They think they're saved, but they're, they come to the conclusion they're not. He actually gets saved. He begins evangelizing the others and organizing converts into a society. Remember, this is the first time Methodist first gets used. Today, the Methodist movement finds its roots. The Methodist church finds its roots in this little club with John Wesley. Here's Whitfield. He said, I must bear testimony to my old friend, Mr. Charles Wesley. He put a book into my hands called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I know the place. It may be superstitious perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me. And gave me the new birth. So, when he would come back and visit through Oxford and preach, he would go see where he was converted and would bring back memories. The book, though, caused a real struggle. This is what led to his conversion a real struggle in his soul, the result of which was that God enabled him to lay hold, he said, on his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me, as I humbly hope, even to the day of everlasting redemption. So can Christian books be used for good? Yeah, because Whitfield knew his Bible. It, he, he thought it was just old news, you know? Well, the Bible, I know it. I grew up with it. I heard it in church. But he gets this Puritan work, and suddenly that lights the fire. And God uses that as a means to make him alive again. And then he goes back to the Scriptures and sees the true gospel. Charles and John in 1735, they leave for a colony, the Georgia Colony, And uh, their father had just died. He had money. He had holdings. And so they went over there and they said, well, we'll just be missionaries to America. The problem is they're not saved. So they're not going to do very well with this mission work. George now takes over the Holy Club in their absence. He finishes his degree. He becomes first an official deacon in the church. And he preaches his first sermon. And that's as far as he's going to get in the Anglican church as far as title and office. Because he's not going to be well liked by a lot of Anglican bishops. Like the Wesleys, he decides to move toward becoming a missionary. So, missionary to America, that's the big movement. You're going to go there and preach to the American Indians or maybe to the slave population that is growing there. And so, in 36, Charles comes back to England from America. That's the hymn writer, Charles. John is more of the preacher, and George Whitfield. Whitfield in 1737 starts to draw thousands to hear him preach in London and Bristol. The church is dead and suddenly thousands of people are coming out to hear Whitfield preach. And the bishops don't like that. Suddenly this new upstart young person is getting all these people to come listen to him. And so they don't let him come to their churches and preach. And so what he does, and it happens with the Wesleys as well, is that Whitfield and John Wesley say, look, We'll preach outside. And that's really the first time since the early church that you start to see people preaching outside. Not just because it's a sunrise service on Easter, but because they aren't allowed in the churches in England. And so they go outside. And it's the same in America. The Anglican church doesn't necessarily like them to preach in the church. Uh, John flees America in 1737. So he finally comes back to England because he had a young lady that he was very interested in. And uh, John Wesley is going to have some problems with women, his girlfriend or the woman he was interested in, Sophie Hopke, that relationship falls through, and in Georgia, just a backstory on her, he meets her and he's very interested, but he thought the relationship might hurt his ministry, and at this time, he didn't have to remain unmarried. It's the Anglican Church. you can get married as a pastor as as a bishop, but he had his sights on mission work, he had his sights on being this evangelistic preacher and this is going to cause him problems if he gets married so he doesn't he, he drags his feet he wants to finish his missionary work to the indians she gets tired of waiting for him after a year she says look i'm going to marry somebody else It's taking too long he says well i got to figure out what i'm going to do so what do, what should you do right you draw lots you pull out the the the, the lots like they did in the old testament he thinks And so he draws lots, and I guess it said don't marry her because he chooses not to. Don't draw lots. That's an Old Testament thing. Just go to your pastor, go to your elders, go to your trusted Christian friend for advice, your parents if they're believers. On August 7th, she's coming to the church. He's serving there, and he refuses to give her communion. He's not too happy, even though he's decided not to marry her. But he's mad at her And so her new husband gets very upset because he wouldn't serve her communion, and he brings legal charges against John. And John says, "I'm getting out of here. I'm going back to England." 1738. George Whitfield spends three months in Georgia. On May 21st, Charles will find himself in of that year. Charles Wesley finds himself at peace with God, so he gets converted. May 24th, John's back in England. He goes to a Moravian church service that's meeting in London. And they're just getting warmed up with the church service and read Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And they're just reading the introduction. They're not even into the commentary yet of Romans. And he feels his heart strangely warm. That's probably when John Wesley is converted to the faith and believes in Christ, truly. 1739, George becomes an an official priest. So I said deacon was the highest. He gets ordained priest, but finds that many pulpits are now closed to him. They, they're still calling, and today they call him priests in the Anglican church. He gets the title, but he never gets to use it because they won't let him. Churches are, are closed. He begins preaching outdoors. That's when not just thousands, but tens of thousands hear of Christ in the fields. Some nobility, including the Countess of Huntingdon, are drawn to Whitfield. So here's the Countess of Huntingdon. She's a uh, wealthy countess her family and what the wealthy the really patrons of these preachers what they would do is hire them to come out if you have an estate you would have a church on your property so your people didn't have to travel to town and go through all the bad weather and you might have your little your little pastor there but you could invite people like this and he would come and preach to the family and the servants and everybody And she would support his ministry into her old age. There's a great biography on her, Selina, the Countess of Huntingdon, by Faith Cook. I think we may even have this one in our bookstore. She was a huge supporter of Whitfield, and especially Whitfield, but the Wesleys as well. So let's look at the Great Awakening. In 39, he comes to America, Whitfield does, and he preaches to throngs of people, the largest crowds ever to come together until modern sports arenas are built. He preaches in New York. He preaches in Philadelphia. Following Whitfield's example, John Wesley begins to preach outdoors in that same year. Whitfield is involved in the Great Awakening in America. He, he teams up with Jonathan Edwards, and this thing is already going in Edwards' little town, and they start preaching all over the colonies, or at least up in the northern colonies. In 1740, the Methodists will now separate. They had been with the Moravians based on Wesley's friendship with the Moravians. They they decide to separate. So who are the Methodists? Well, it's it's basically Whitfield, the Wesleys, and all of the people who are following their movement. And they they still go to the Anglican Church at this time. They just meet in these meetings during the week, prayer meeting you might call it, or or holy meetings. They they're. They're meeting to study the Bible. They're meeting to apply it. Because you go to church and you don't hear the Bible preached. So you got to go to Bible study with the Methodist during the week to find out what the Bible means and how you're supposed to live. So there's Whitfield preaching outdoors. You can see the woman in the front here. That, that's the kind of things that would happen. You, you've got the, the drunk guy over here, and he's, he's offering the preacher a beer. And, and you've got the, the woman here. She's convicted in her heart. And the guy that looks like he's asleep on the stone there. The dog's laying down. But there's an old woman in the left corner with her Bible. This is uh, in America. This is the kind of scene that he he would just preach in the fields. He would just preach the same message from town to town over and over and over. Thousands of times he would preach a year. Here's Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin had dismissed these reports of Whitfield preaching to crowds. He said, there's no way tens of thousands of people in New England would come out. That's an exaggeration. So he goes to hear Whitfield in Philadelphia... And Whitfield is preaching outside the courthouse in Philadelphia. And so Franklin begins to walk and see how far he can hear Whitfield. And he starts walking and walking. And he's going to do a calculation. Even though Franklin was not a Christian, he would respect these preachers and at least go see what they were all about. He then estimated his distance from Whitfield to the area that he could no longer hear him. He calculates the semicircle centered on Whitfield. He allows two square feet per person and realizes... Whitfield really could be heard by tens of thousands of people in the open air. I think in Philadelphia there was about 30,000. That was the largest crowd he had. 30,000 people outside, no amplification. It would be, you know, if the guy is way over there by the fence and you could still hear him and this field is just flooded with people. And so they're listening and, and Benjamin Franklin was once asked, why do you go hear Whitfield? You don't believe in that. And he says, yeah, but he does. Whitfield believes in what he's preaching. And so I go listen to him for that. So here he is. This is another thing. that They had hecklers pretty bad. And these were cultural Christians. But they did not like people telling them they had to be born again. They weren't saved. Who wants to hear that? So you've got the guy up in the tree with a horn. And he's, he's making a ton of racket. You've got the guy with a whip. I don't know if that really happened. But this the idea is people were always badgering him. He's got the whip behind him here. You've got the drummer. They would beat drums and play instruments and do whatever they could so that people couldn't hear Whitfield's message. Uh, but then you also have people who are serious, people who want to hear, people who are converted. I, I couldn't find it, but I remember reading or hearing about a story where this this guy's going to go hear Whitfield in New York or Philadelphia. And he has to he goes through his day and he gets on his horse at his farm, and the horse goes here and and the closer he gets, the more people are streaming in and' it's this excitement, and all these people come, and this person finally gets to hear Whitfield and is converted goes back to his farm as a christian uh here's Sarah Edwards Jonathan Edwards' wife she gets to hear Whitfield in Northampton where Edwards is the uh pastor there he comes Whitfield comes to preach there Sarah writes this he's truly a remarkable man during his visit has, I think, verified all that we have heard of him. You have already heard of his deep-toned, yet clear and melodious voice. Oh, it is perfect music to listen to that alone. And he speaks so easily without any apparent effort. He, he's a very devout and godly man. His only aim seems to be to reach and influence men the best way. Men would include men and women. He speaks from a heart all aglow with love and pours out a torrent of eloquence which is almost irresistible. Many, very many persons in Northampton date the beginning of new thoughts, new desires, new purposes, and a new life, talking about conversion, from the day on which they heard him preach of Christ and this salvation. Another painting, there's many paintings. Here he is just on the hillside there. And uh, George Whitfield is here. Y'all come out of, come out of town, listen to him, he's up here. Oh Whitfield, that's what the newspapers are writing about. That's this guy from England. He's attracting all these crowds in Philadelphia. He's in our town. They would come out. They would listen. The wealthy classes would be on the front row. Here's a Wesley, a famous sermon he gave on top of his father's tomb. His father, back then you were buried in the churchyard. And there he's, he's not allowed in the church. That's the, the paintings encapsulating that. But he'll preach outside and he'll stand on his father's tombstone as his little stage and preach. Here's Wesley again in a little village right outside. Not in the church, outside the church. He would be allowed to preach in in churches sometimes, but not very often. Well, they do split, and this is probably all we'll we'll be able to cover, but they do split, Wesley's and Whitfield's split. They split over theology, the theology of Calvinism and Arminianism. In 1741, Whitfield comes back to England, and he's met with hostility. Suddenly, he's preaching, and people don't like his theology. And they're almost calling him a heretic. And it turns out that his partner, Wesley, had been preaching against... George Whitfield's views and against election and against predestination so when he returns after a couple of years of being in America he finds a different audience here's what Ian Murray wrote about this split when Whitfield returned to England at the end of 1738 after his first visit to America he found that the awakening in London had been furthered by the conversion and subsequent ministry of the Wesley's immediately they began to work together under Whitfield's preaching, the revival spread to Bristol, the, the West Country in February and March 1739. So these are early years. John Wesley's now given the oversight of the work because Whitfield's going to America. On Whitfield's departure from England in August 1739, Wesley immediately published this sermon. So he waits till Whitfield leaves, then he publishes this sermon in print, Free Grace. It professed to be founded upon Romans 8:32. When Whitfield heard about it, he wrote to Wesley. He said, what a a fond conceit it is to cry up perfection, because that was one of Wesley's bad doctrines. He thought you could live a perfect Christian life. He says, you cry up perfection, but you cry down the doctrine of final perseverance, that a believer will be saved and is always saved, and they can't lose their salvation. But this and many other absurdities you will run into because you will not own election." Oh, that you would study the covenant of grace. Oh, that you would not be too rash and precipitant. If you go on thus, honored sir, how can I concur with you? It is impossible. I must speak what I know. On February 1741, he says further, I must preach the gospel of Christ and that I cannot now do without speaking of election. They're still friends. They remain friends. Wesley does his funeral. This is the way friends talk to each other back then. Nowadays, you know, you say this to a friend and the whole church will blow up. You you can't talk like this, write letters like this. Back then, people could take it, you know? This is what you did in debate. This is what a preacher would do. They would preach even in his letters. Whitfield published a reply in 1741 to the sermon that went out. Dear sir, for Jesus Christ's sake, consider how you dishonor God by denying election. You plainly make salvation depend on God's free grace, but on man's free will. Not not on God's free grace, but on man's free will. And if thus, it is more than probable... Jesus Christ would not have had the satisfaction of seeing the fruit of his death and the eternal salvation of one soul. Our preaching would be in vain and all invitations for people to believe in him would also be in vain. So if you remember our discussion on Calvinism, what he's saying here is that God has chosen a people and they will respond to the sermon. And he says, if you deny that, you don't even know if Christ died for anyone. So we'll pick up next week and we'll talk about John Wesley's perfectionism. It is still an official... They don't like to talk about it, but it's still in the Methodist doctrine today. And you'll really want to come back and hear about his marriage, which was awful. So next week, Lord, thank you for men in church history, even though they had failings, even though they often did things that we wouldn't approve of today. They were preaching the gospel. They did see people saved and they did love you, Lord, even if sometimes used in the wrong way. We thank you that they came to America, that they came to preach the gospel here and that that saved many souls. Let it be so today in the churches of America. In the name of Jesus, amen.